0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Health Points where we talk about everything gamification and health. I'm Ben Wilkins and my co host is Pete Jenkins.
1: Hi everyone, really pleased to uh, invite along our guest this week, Andy Yeoman from Focus Games. Andy is the co founder and director of Focus Games. Prior to entering the world of serious games, he completed an undergrad in human biology and worked in sales, marketing, and client relationship roles for international life sciences organizations. Focus Games launched in 2004 to develop education and learning games to change thinking and behavior. They achieved this through both physical board games in person and digital games with virtual options too. They work primarily in the health and social care sector, making learning memorable, enjoyable, and effective, which encourages players to discuss new ideas, share knowledge, and learn from each other. And that's why we're here today with him, to
2: learn from each other. Andy, welcome. Hi, Ben. Hi, Pete. Many thanks for inviting me to take part in the Health Points podcast. I am an avid listener, so I'm really delighted to be here.
0: Fantastic. Andy, it'd be great if you can first tell us about kind of your background and your journey to creating focus games.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, as you said in the introduction, I studied to be a biologist. But after I graduated, I realized pretty quickly that I was never going to be a very good scientist. So I moved into business and I first started working in international banking, and then I moved into biotechnology before I became a management consultant, focusing on large-scale organizational change in life sciences company. It was while I was doing that that I met my current business partner, Melvin Bell, and we set up Focus Games in 2004. Our plan had been to use tabletop games as a way of helping organizations to deliver change programs more effectively, by bringing people together and improving frontline engagement and communication. But for a variety of reasons, most of them accidental, we shifted our focus to working mostly in healthcare, and we developed a much wider range of games that address different educational and organizational issues. In the beginning, we mostly developed tabletop games intended to bring groups together for face-to-face interactions but over the years we've increasingly focused on digital engagement and and the lack of digital in the start wasn't because we had any prejudices against digital it's just we didn't have the, the experience and the, the capability to do it i mean Our games I think could be described as content driven and we rely heavily on the written and the spoken word in our games and the formula that we've always tried to follow when we're developing games is that if we can provide new knowledge and information to players and the confidence for them to put that knowledge into practice, the games can help to deliver improvement. Uh, We currently have a development studio in Glasgow and we decided quite early on that we needed our own in-house development team. Um, And so we can now do just about everything in that studio. And we also have a warehouse in Glasgow for storing the printed games that we sell and distribute. Since 2004, we've developed over 100 games and simulations that cover a wide range of issues that fall into four broad categories, which are medical education for medical professionals professionals, um, staff training for all staff, um, patient engagement to help people with conditions and who are receiving treatment to understand what's happening to them better and to manage whatever's happening to them better, and also public health campaigns designed to encourage people to improve the way that they, they live their lives or to do specific things like get vaccinated We always develop our games in partnership with subject matter experts. We don't consider ourselves to be experts in most of the subjects that our games address. And our partners are usually doctors, nurses, and academics. So they're working in the NHS or in other healthcare providers or in universities. And the the content in our games has to be evidence based and up to date because our players are often practicing clinicians and medics. So safety is essential. And also they're highly trained uh, professionals and, and they can spot a mistake a mile away. So it's essential that we work with these subject matter experts. I mean, the games that we've developed cover a wide range of issues, and that includes cancer treatment, stroke rehabilitation, emergency medicine, domestic abuse, LGBT plus rights, uh, sexism in the workplace, leadership development, pain management, menopause, team performance. I mean, I I could go on, but I won't. But we can cover a lot of different subjects with the games. And some of those subjects you could describe as being emotionally charged or difficult. So games are a good way of addressing mainstream training and education issues but also more difficult emotional issues as well and I think that a lot of our games appear to be very simple and as games they usually are very simple and that's intentional but as educational tools they're quite sophisticated so while the game mechanism is simple uh, the content and the narrative structure are often quite complex and it's taken us a long time to get that balance right
1: Can we get a bit of context here? Because I'm getting a feel for like there's a lot of games, over 100 games you developed. You've got a warehouse full of board games. How many people have you impacted, do you think, or how many people have played the games? Can you give us a bit of an insight? Uh,
2: Yes. We went through a, a fairly ludicrous exercise, I think, of trying to calculate just how many people would have played our games, given how many of our games have been sent to people. And we came in at over 2 million people we think we'll have played our games at some point. It's a guess. But I mean that's linked on, you know, we've got X number of games out there in the world and usually between eight and twelve people will play those games. And we know from feedback that at least some of the people who have those games are using them regularly. So it's a lot of people. And we we have qualitative feedback from facilitators and players of games. And you know that runs into tens of thousands of, of individual items of feedback from people. So There's a lot going on out there, but we're a small company and health and social care just in the UK is gigantic worldwide. It's enormous. So it's a challenge for us to let more people know that we exist and, and what we do. From your
0: experience, what's been so different about adding gamification into education? And we see gamification in all forms of education. It's amazing what you've done within health and social care. What is the feedback you have from your players to say they take on different depths of knowledge and information? compared to just going on a standard training course? Or would you measure that as well in terms of the depth of information and knowledge retention that you have through playing your games as an interactive learning tool compared to going on a standard PowerPoint training course?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I'd like to be able to claim that our games are heralded as being transformational, but I think they're an improvement on a lot of what's being offered to people. Um, And we know from the feedback that they give us that, you know, 80, 90% of people who play the games enjoy them and also think that they were beneficial. I mean, most of the people who play our games are, are, what they do is evidence-based and they, they therefore ask us for evidence that the games are effective before they're willing to engage with the idea or to use them. So it's really important to us that we gather that qualitative feedback from the actual users and the facilitators of the games. But we also work with quite a few universities and other institutions who carry out formal investigations and evaluations of games. And, uh, you know, quite a bit of that research has been published. It's been peer reviewed and published. And and that evidence base is really important to us because, A, for our own Not sanity, but, I mean, so that we can look people in the eyes and say these games can be effective. And the things you're looking at measuring, I mean, it's not different. Do You know, are they good at delivering knowledge to people? Do people retain that knowledge? But probably more importantly, we want the games to deliver real life improvement. So do the games also deliver the confidence that people need to actually implement the knowledge in real life? And whether that's, you know, delivering care to patients or whether it's patients themselves looking after themselves more carefully and more effectively?
0: Can you give us an example of just a couple of your favorite games that you've created, kind of what is the journey like for a player? How do they interact with it? Whether it's a board game or a digital version, it'd be great to kind of paint a bit of a picture for our listeners.
2: Yes. I mean, picking a favorite, I guess it's like children, um, they all do different things for different people. I mean, some of the games that we, we expected to be not very popular turned out to be our most popular games. And probably the one that springs to mind is the dysphagia game. And, and dysphagia is a condition that can affect lots of people for different reasons, and it means that you have difficulty swallowing. So Drinking and eating, as we would know, it becomes very difficult because you could choke to death or you could get um, a form of of pneumonia. Um, And it's, on the whole, not managed or recognised that well in healthcare. And we developed a game for NHS England about dysphagia management, and we thought, well, it'll be a niche game. We'll, We'll get some interest. It turned out to be very, very popular, and especially in care home settings, where I think that training is quite difficult because a lot of the staff are described as being unqualified which is unfair on them but you know they're not they're not formally educated and therefore i think games are a nice accessible way for them to to get access to what can be quite complex information and um so i guess games like that the ones that surprise us are probably the, the most interesting as far as we're concerned but we've also got games for individuals digital games uh, Fluby games springs to mind which we developed with the nhs And it was intended to try and persuade um, employees within the NHS to get their flu vaccination because in quite a lot of places, the the rate of uptake is quite low. So we developed this quite simple game. I mean, it's really just a quiz game, but the intention is to challenge sort of the most common myths and misconceptions that stop people getting vaccinated, but also to overcome that inertia or complacency that people have. So the game also tells them in their organisation where they can get vaccinated And Queen's University in Belfast carried out an evaluation with nursing students last year, and their study was published this year. And that clearly proved, well, clearly concluded that um, levels of knowledge about vaccination and the flu vaccine improved. um, Perceptions of the vaccine improved. But more importantly, there was a big um, swing amongst those students who hadn't intended to get vaccinated after playing the game did intend to get vaccinated i think it was i think it was 84 percent of that cohort changed their minds after playing the game so for a game that's very simple works on your phone takes a few minutes to play the fact that it can have such a you know significant impact on the way that people think and behave is i, I, I would say it was quite surprising we hadn't expected it to be that effective but we were pleased that it is
1: you do mention simple, simplicity in your games quite a lot for context what would you say is the most complex one you've created over the years
2: um we have recently i say recently over the past four or five years created more and more um simulations so tabletop simulations and increasingly online simulations and these replicate a physical environment and probably the most complicated one is the floor which is a an emergency department um simulation and it recreates a typical NHS um, emergency department, and, and that's intended for quite senior doctors and nurses to help them to develop their leadership skills within the the, um, the department. And, and those are really intense. I mean, it does recreate quite a lot of the stress and intensity of a real life emergency department. And that's not just me saying that. That's the you know the doctors and the nurses who play the game. So that's probably the most complex it's got lots of moving parts i mean the content is very complex you would have to be an emergency department practitioner in order to understand and play the game so i think that those simulations are the the most complex games that we've we've developed
1: i think that's really interesting so we talk about simple games but here's one that you need to be a practitioner to play how many of your range of games do you think that applies to how many of your games are public facing that's a good question
2: I would say a relatively small number at the moment, but that's increasing. I mean, things like the Fluby game, which are intended to improve vaccine uptake. I mean, we developed versions of those for the the COVID vaccine and also versions aimed at um, malaria prevention and dengue prevention. So those are aimed at the public and we've made other games that are aimed at the public. but. Our big challenge, even in the areas that we focus on, which is healthcare provision, it's really difficult for us to promote ourselves because we're quite small. Trying to promote our games to the general public would probably be just too big a challenge, I think, for us. So we've tended to shy away from games that are, are you might call them mainstream and intended for the uh, the wider public, unless they're part of a public health campaign that's being driven by another organisation, you know, the NHS or Public Health England or some other body. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Ben works that way quite a lot, I think. You've, You've got to work with someone who already has communication things. What's it like in terms of getting busy healthcare practitioners to play games? As opposed to just any other type of learning
2: yeah i mean that, that's an interesting challenge and quite often it's one that we don't face directly because um our games are being used to deliver training and education by educators and trainers in organizations so they are faced with the challenge of how do we tell our you know our colleagues and our peers that these games exist i mean as i think as far as we're concerned it goes back to simplicity because the subjects the games are dealing with quite often are serious subjects. I mean, literally life and death in some cases. And what you need to avoid is that initial response that games are trivial and we are highly trained, experienced professionals dealing with life and death issues. And we don't want them to immediately become defensive or just say there's no way I'm playing a game that deals with the subject that I'm an expert in. So we've always gone for um giving the games credibility and that goes back to the evidence base but also making them simple because not everybody plays games in their private lives so they're not familiar with games necessarily and there's a group within that group who don't like games who would actively avoid playing games and we want to make sure that our games can be played and willingly and enthusiastically by everybody and that's another reason why our games are i guess superficially simple because we don't want people to be repelled or to be distracted by really complex game mechanisms and complex rules i mean as a rule of thumb if a player can't understand how one of our games works within 30 seconds we've probably failed and we need to go back and and make it easier to understand I mean, the the simulations are different, I mean, but that's probably looking at an adult lifetime of training and education that allows them to understand how that works. But yet again, even those complex simulations are relatively easy to play because they know how this works in real life.
0: In that case, what is the steps that you go through, Andy, to create the games? Um, Is there a certain methodology that you follow? Are there certain step processes that you go through as a team?
2: Yes. I mean, because we work in partnership with subject matter experts, these people have got day jobs. They're busy. They're doctors, they're nurses, they're university lecturers, and their day jobs don't usually include developing games. So we know that we have to be mindful of their time. So we've developed a process that that means that we do most of the work in the background and we're going to them iteratively to to really draw on their knowledge and their experience. But our job is to take their knowledge and their expertise and to translate it into a format that will work in a game. And so we we try to keep the contact with them to a minimum. So when we've got something to share with them, we'll go back for a sense or a sanity check and say, are we heading down the right track? Is this information safe and correct? Will it work with your colleagues? Yes. We will then go back and do another iteration and develop it further until we're, you know, we're at that stage of testing. But there's a very clear um, stepwise process that we've developed in order to make that work as efficiently as we think it can. We don't always stick to that because everybody's different, every situation's different. But the framework, on the whole, guides us um, and it, it works well for us. You mentioned about making
0: sure that games are quite simple and easy to follow because if it takes too long to engage in this and the rules then you you failed as an organization. In that case, what are the typical game mechanics that you add into a game, or what are the kind of rules that people would expect to experience when playing one of the focus games?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. In a way, I think our games are almost like an artist's impression of a game. We're trying to create the essence of a game in many of them without a lot of the complexities that a mainstream game that's designed for entertainment would have. So it looks like a game, and a lot of what you're doing within the game feels like a game, but if you were to sit down and analyze it as a game, it probably wouldn't hold up that well. If you took the content out of the game, you wouldn't want to play it Andy, you
0: mentioned about the dysphagia game that wasn't so successful um, when it was really successful, but when you did create it, you didn't think it was going to be as successful as it actually was. Why do you think it ended up being so successful? And have there been any other games you've created that have gone beyond your wildest dreams in success or some you picked as huge champion games and actually flopped? What were the reasons for those and what did you learn in, in that process?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure how well I'll be able to answer it. I mean, the dysphagia game, I think our expectations, low expectations, were because of our low level of understanding of dysphagia and just how widespread it is and what a need there was for practical Um, sort of training and education around the subject. So I think that we inadvertently hit on some, you know, quite a big need and and that was why. But as I say, we should have known that and didn't. We should have done a little bit more investigation probably. But the people we were working with who are speech and language therapists and dieticians, they knew that it was going to be popular. So, you know, the professionals had it covered. But that game now been translated, I think, into eight different languages. So it's not just in this country, it's being used in many different places. So, you know, a lot of the the issues and the problems that the games address, and not just sort of prevalent in the UK. A lot of them are universal. I mean, the games can work pretty much anywhere. And
0: what does the dysphagia game look like? What's the gameplay like for the individual when they're taking part?
2: Oh, well, it's probably as simple as you can get. It's a um, reworking of snakes and ladders. So as a board game, it's you don't have snakes or ladders. I think it's spoons and forks that you go up and down, but um, it's snakes and ladders. And that comes back to the idea that we want people to almost intuitively know how to play the game so the game doesn't get in the way and you know quite a few of our games take these really basic um, almost childish board game mechanisms the most simple board game mechanisms and we reuse those just because people are familiar with them and they recognize them And they work. I mean, people don't say this is too simple because they're not expecting a complex game. That's not why they're playing the game. I think that the deal you do with the people playing is, okay. we're going to spend 45 minutes or 60 minutes learning about dysphagia or whatever it might be. And we're going to use a game to do that, which means that it will be a more enjoyable process for you. They're not going into this expecting a really exciting or singing or dancing immersive game. Um, and, you know, which is fine. That, that's the deal. And I think everybody kind of understands what it is that somebody can stand in front of them for 45 minutes and fire a load of PowerPoints at them, or they can play a game and enjoy themselves. And, you know, they appreciate and enjoy the fact that the game helps them to do that.
1: I'm going to divert off Ben's question in that case and say um, of your over 100 games, are they all based off different basic games? Or do you have like, um, are you able to reuse the same template with different content? more and more how do you go about it
0: and do you have monopoly and does it result in arguments and people flipping the board game over
2: <laughs> well it may do i've never seen it uh, we do get quite a lot of cheating i must say but it's usually fairly good natured and um i mean the comments that we get mostly from people during the development process to start with is uh, we want it to look like trivial pursuit or monopoly and uh, we try our hardest to steer them away from that but we we do reuse basic game mechanisms and templates especially in the printed games because there are only a limited number of simple board game mechanisms and so we you know we try to do variations on them they look different um, but they follow the same basic rules digital somewhat different because of course you have much more flexibility and freedom than to, to you know to invent your own mechanisms and your own pathways and your own ways of making the content work for the audience that you're aiming it at So I'd say we're becoming more diverse and creative as we focus more on digital and online.
1: I think that's a really interesting learning from it. So what you're saying is basically we're able to customise and personalise better digitally than in the physical game world.
2: Yes, I would say that, although I still think that face-to-face human interactions are the most effective way of making these sort of games work online can recreate those dynamics to a certain extent but i don't think yet we've achieved the same level of intensity um, or effectiveness as you would with a group of people sitting around a table talking to each other but having said that i think that games versus any other sort of online engagement like e-learning or just you know a zoom meeting where somebody's presenting slides the games are a more effective online way of delivering what you want them to deliver. I've
1: got to ask a bonus question. So do you have any hybrid games which are in both physical and digital worlds?
2: Yes, um, we have. I mean, before the pandemic, we developed a few games where we had a board game. So a board would sit on the table, as you would expect, but there might be an iPad in the middle of it. And the iPad was acting as a digital facilitator, let's say. So the iPad was managing a lot of the game mechanics, the timings, uh, presenting new scenarios, um, just making the game move forward rather than having a human being doing that. The, the pandemic, of course, forced us to look at the way that the games were used, and we took a lot of the existing physical board games and created um, an online platform that allowed those games to be used during meetings like this. So essentially, rather than putting a board onto a table, you would share your screen and a version of the board would be presented on the screen to anybody who could see it that was intended initially to cover all the zoom meetings and the teams meetings that people were having because there was no face-to-face contact but what we came to realize as time went on that these were being used equally for face-to-face engagement. So you could put the game up on a big screen and you could have people in the same room, but they could be more distant, so they could be further apart than they would be if they were playing a traditional board game. So we've actually found almost by accident that those those online games are being used for face-to-face and for remote, but also for hybrid some people in the same room, some people online, and they can all have the same experience, play the same game. And we've taken that to another level, I guess, by creating online multiplayer group games. So rather than you just looking at the screen that the facilitator is sharing, we now have games that you know everybody can participate in.
1: What well, can you tell us about one of those? That sounds really interesting.
2: Yeah, there's an interesting little card game that we made called Doctor Jargon. Now, it started life as a card game and um, it's intended to help healthcare professionals, doctors and nurses, to use plain language when they're talking to their patients to try and drop the jargon. So don't use as many complex terms when they're describing to a patient what's going on. And it's based on an existing game, really. But the idea is that each player takes it in turns to try and describe a term, a medical term, to their teammates without using a certain number of jargon words. And if they use a jargon word, they get busted. And it worked really well as a card game. But of course, yet again, pandemic meant that people weren't coming together and playing card games. And so we we made it into an online multiplayer game. And we had thought, OK, well, everybody will be in different places, and they'll be interacting through screens. So they'll all be looking at their version of the game on a phone or an iPad, but they won't be in the same place. But it works really well in the same room. If everybody's got a phone, they can all just be looking at their phone as if they had a card in their hands and the game works perfectly well. But you can just stand a bit further back and there's nothing to touch or, you know, to share. So that's probably at the, I was going to say simple. It's not simple, but it seems to be simple and it works really well. At the other end are those um, clinical simulations that I was talking about that had only existed as printed games for face-to-face group engagement, we're now taking those online. So those those are quite complex multiplayer online simulations that, you know, have got a lot of moving parts and um, they're, they're quite a challenge. But the feedback so far from our stakeholders within the NHS and other healthcare providers is that there's a real need for that sort of complex online training that's simulation-based. So much
1: interesting stuff here. One thing I was interested in there was actually how much effort is it to keep a game simple? Especially when you're working with other stakeholders yeah because it seems natural to go well here's a new thing we want to teach them let's have another game mechanic for that but actually you only want to keep it understandable
2: yeah it's become easier over the years because we have more and more examples of games that have been that are being used and have been successful to say look simplicity works and here are some games that your colleagues are already using and they themselves may already be using that may be why they came to us because they'd already used one of our games um i think that I was going to say the biggest problem we have is not a problem. But if anybody in the core group of subject matter experts is an avid gamer in their private life, they're the ones who want to see that complexity and those game dynamics and mechanics replicated in the games that we're developing. And there's a little, sometimes a, a little bit of a heated discussion about why that might not be such a good idea. Uh, and in the past, we have got to the stage where I said, well, they're paying, and therefore, you know, ultimately we will do what they want us to do but in testing the complexity is a clear problem you know the thing just doesn't work people don't like it they don't know how to use it and so we then revert back to simplicity and try not to say i told you
0: and i'm I'm going to take a guess that dr jargon is very similar to a certain word vocabulary game that i play every christmas kind of where did the idea come from how did it how did it come to be
2: yeah, I'd like to say that we're um, a bunch of geniuses and the the idea came to us spontaneously. But actually, Dr. Jargon was invented by a junior doctor. Um, and it may well be that she had also played a similar game to the one that you you might be thinking of. Um, and she brought the, the idea to us and we then worked it up into something that we could commercialize um, and jointly sell.
0: It's great that there's so much co-creation and co-production that you're having your game players coming back to you to suggest ideas for every game and that there's this real drive collectively to improve training and education within health and social care from your side as the focus games, but also from health and social care professionals too. One thing you mentioned earlier about education for people around COVID. So a previous Health Points episode was with Agnesa and Paula and they were looking at uh, education around COVID for families and certain communities uh, in South America. Now, not just within COVID, but health education is an extremely important part for the 21st century of managing health conditions. Can you see a future where there's more health education involved in gamification? And are you working in the area? And what do you think it looks like?
2: Yes, we we are working in that area. I mean, you know yourselves that there are rehabilitation games, there are lots of different ways that games can be used with, you know, with patients and with the public. Um, I think that what we look to using games for is to address that issue of low levels of health literacy. And this goes back in in, in a way to Dr. Jargon that an awful lot of people just don't understand what's being said to them. They don't, they don't really understand what's wrong with them. They don't understand the medication or the treatment that they've been given. And, And that, quite often comes down to a language issue they're just being told things in the wrong way and games are a good way of simplifying complicated things and then presenting that information in an engaging and non-threatening way so for us it's about it's about creating a safe space, let's say. And, and let's not forget that if you've been given a diagnosis that's either life limiting or life ending, you're going to be stressed, upset and anxious and your cognitive abilities will diminish because of that. So it's even more important that you get information delivered to you in a way that's that's appropriate and and isn't going to add to your anxiety so we're looking at using games in that way but of course there are lots of different people using games in lots of different ways and you know there's a place for all of them probably but that's what we would focus on is is trying to improve health literacy for people
0: do you have any personal favorite games that you play uh, in your leisure time
2: i don't i guess it might almost a shameful admission but i'm i'm not an avid gamer in my private life i i tend to view games that we haven't developed as something of interest because they might provide inspiration. But I don't tend to play a lot of games as an individual. So there it's out in the open.
0: Slightly shocked. I was expecting the opposite answer there. But do you think not having that interaction reduces your biases into what type of games you should be creating then? Is there is there a benefit for you not being an avid gamer?
2: I have worked on the self-justification of this to you know, to uh, try and make myself feel better or certainly not make my feel so, myself feel so ashamed when I, I, I admit that to other serious game developers. But I think it helps with the simplicity because I don't come with any biases, let's say, about what sorts of games I like or how they should look and how they should work. Um, if I were presented with a complex, immersive video game, I wouldn't be that inclined to play it. And that's probably why we don't make many of them. Uh, It doesn't mean to say they can't work. It's just that I personally don't have an affinity with them.
0: In that case, it's fantastic you're having junior doctors come to you with suggestions and ideas. I (laughs) want to expand on that a little bit. And what is it like to co-create games with large health institutions like the NHS? How does that work and how do you make that work? As quite high demand and expectations from the major health provider in the nation down to your ability to deliver upon that uh, and make it work
2: yeah it's i mean we're really fortunate really really fortunate that we we have these people coming to us and they're willing to give us their time and their expertise to develop these games and although the 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 ultimate sponsor or the the customer may be um an NHS hospital trust or it might be NHS England or Health Education England We're usually working with individuals from within those organisations and those individuals on the whole are really enthusiastic and really committed to the development of a game as a different way of delivering training in their particular area. So I must say, it's uh, at the risk of sounding like a Miss World contestant, it's great. I mean, it's you know we get to learn new things all the time. We meet new people, we get to learn about new subjects, um, and on the whole, these people are great, and we you know the relationships tend to be long-lasting. And we've you know several of these groups, we've developed not just one game but but several games with them.
0: Where do you think the future is going, not just for focus games and the gamification of education and training, but where do you think health gamification is going in the next 10, 20 years?
2: Honestly, don't know. I'm not sure that I have a, um, a broad enough or an informed enough view of everything that's going on in health games and gamification. I mean, certainly our own personal experiences over the years that it's become easier to, um, to explain this to people and to get them to understand and accept what it is that we're trying to do. So that's definitely changed that levels of understanding amongst, you know, the people that we would hope to reach has increased and is improving. And I can only hope that that continues. Um, I mean, I think that the, the use of, of sort of online channels as a way of delivering games will will increase. And there's so much awfully learning out there that I think there's a real need for something better than that. Um, and I think that the pandemic in some ways has has helped to make people more responsive or receptive to that because they've been forced to engage with things online. And in a way, that's... Force them also to make fairly profound value judgments about what they think is good and what they think is bad, which has played to our strengths in a way because we can say, well, hey, you know, you've now really definitively decided that that is not good. Take a look at this and see whether you think it might be more appealing and more effective.
1: E learning is, is really massive and it's in every department, every business in the world. What would you say isn't working that well? What are the things that people have noticed because of the pandemic? So they're having to look for different ways to do it.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't want to diss, you know, other people who are working in e-learning, but it does seem that e-learning can be bought by the ton, where quality is not necessarily an issue. It's just, you know, we have mandatory training to deliver, therefore there are boxes to be ticked, and, you know, some e-learning will tick those boxes. It doesn't really matter whether it works, or we're not going to test whether it works. The fact that we've commissioned it, we've bought it, and it exists is enough, I think that's the sort of end of things that's bad. And, you know, a lot of that mandatory training is mandatory for a reason. It's it's related to health, to safety, to outcomes. It's important and it should be, I think, treated with more respect and, and taken a little bit more seriously.
1: Would you say this is more of an issue from the buyer than the producer then? Because they're just doing what they're asked for
0: on a budget.
2: I would guess that, yes, the suppliers are you know, supplying to fill a demand or a gap. Um, but I think that, I mean, there are lots of relationships between people in learning and development and vendors. So I think they, you know there's a joint responsibility for what gets done and what doesn't get done.
0: As someone who was on an e-learning training course this week, Andy, uh, I wish there was more gamification interactivity in it. Um, it was partly uh, self-learning on just a on- online course, some of it, and then the rest of it was kind of a virtual Zoom call, uh, but it, God, it was boring. <laughs> 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 my goodness uh it was a health medical health and safety training course um and what i liked what you said earlier about creating games that people enjoy as part of training because training is so often seen as a chore as something they have to get through to tick a box the idea you can reframe the idea that training is something people want to engage with and proactively look forward to it i think that's the future of training within health and social care without a doubt Andy, it's been fantastic to have you on the show today. Um, We wish you all the best with Focus Games and looking forward to an update in the future too.
2: Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. They've been good questions. So thanks for asking them and thanks for giving me the opportunity to answer them. Thanks, Andy. It's been a lot of fun.